Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 30, Black and White Man's War and Scouting the Place of Stones. Mafia King is one of those truly strange stories in history, as you'll see. It's April 1900. The new century is four months old. Lord Roberts has halted after seizing the Orange Free State Republic capital, Bloemfontein, and Buller has finally liberated Ladysmith in Natal. In the northwest of South Africa is this small town called Moffat King. It's there that the Colonel Baden-Powell is unable to move, hemmed in by really a small group of Boers, 1700 or so. But this was April. Earlier things were very different around the small desert town, and creative measures were required in order to shore up the defences. One of these was the introduction of black troops. Thomas Packenham, the author has an excellent quote, which I must use here, from General Cronier, in charge of the Free State Boer Commandos, to Colonel Baden-Powell in October 1899, as the Anglo-Boer War began. And he wrote, It is understood that you have armed bastards, fingers, and barrelongs against us. In this you have committed an enormous act of wickedness. Reconsider the matter, even if it cost you the loss of Mafi King. Disarm your blacks, and thereby act the part of a white man in the white man's war. But of course, that's rubbish. This was not a white man's war. Both sides pretended at first it was the case, yet the Boers were using techniques, strategies and tactics perfected during two centuries and more of warfare against Africans. The Boers were using African tactics against a European army. Furthermore, both sides had armed black South Africans, and both sides used blacks as sappers or engineers, building trenches and bulwarks, laying traps... Others were used for scouting as well as spying. Soon after war began in October 1899, General French, who was the famous British cavalry commander who we've heard about, ran into a Boer raiding party of Transvaal commandos, which included black soldiers armed on horseback, fighting for the Boers as they galloped into Natal. I will spend an entire podcast in the future looking at this matter. In this case, we're concentrating on what Baden-Powell was up to in Mafeking, along with an array of characters like Generals Ilof and Sneemann of the Boers, and Sol Plaki, the translator, who would go on to greater things in politics, as well as Lady Wilson and someone called Vessels, a Baralong chief. This week we'll pick up the Mafeking story in January, the heart of the rainy season. The commander of the garrison was admired by both his men and the citizens of the town, but Lord Baden-Powell had a dark side, and black citizens were starting to realise that the British had alternative plans for them as the siege of Muffet King dragged on. Baden-Powell realised that he was going to run out of food before any relief arrived and eventually cut rations to blacks in order to cause starvation. As I explain what happened between January 1900 and the end of April, when Baden-Powell forced thousands of black residents out of the town, you'll see how this strategy would play out. It's obvious militarily, but sickening in hypocrisy. It is quite tough castigating Baden-Powell. He's loved by millions to this day as the founder of the World Scout Movement and has many other characteristics which are astonishing. He could sing like a bird, he could write poetry, and his art was way above average. Mafeking is one of the most isolated towns in southern Africa, even today. It's 500 kilometers north of Kimberley, so Lord Roberts's relief column, which was heading to Pretoria anyway, was hardly likely to arrive soon. Their only hope was a column from the then Rhodesia under Lieutenant Colonel Plumer, but that was also months away. 
Mafi King lies close to the point where the Bechuana Land Protectorate, or modern Botswana, the Transvaal Republic and the Cape Colony met on the flank of the Kalahari Desert. The garrison felt abandoned, and Baden-Powell was crucial to its survival. Put yourself in this place, isolated, alienated, separated. Unlike Kimberley, where its commander Kekovich was hated by some, including Cecil John Rhodes, and Ladysmith, where Colonel White was despised by all, Baden-Powell, as officer commanding, was admired and loved by most, most of the time. Even the Queen had sent him a direct message, which read, I continue watching with confidence and admiration the patient and resolute defence. Little known was the original plan, however, that Baden-Powell had been sent to Mafeking as a decoy of sorts in July 1899 to remind the Boers that someone with special skills was so close to their main towns in the Transvaal Republic. He commanded a tiny force of less than a thousand men and set to work immediately arming the Khalids and Baralong as well as other black forces. Thus Cronier's letter. Baden-Powell had initially been ordered to attack Johannesburg as the war began, but he was surrounded initially by 7,700 Boers. He realised the only way to survive was to draw on local men, and so he raised two regiments of slouch-hatted mounted infantry, a Rhodesian corps at Bulawayo and a Bechuanaland Protectorate corps based at Ramatlabana, close to Mafeking. When the war began, he ordered the Rhodesian Corps under Plumer to remain in place and called the Bechuanaland Corps to Mafeking as bait to draw more Boers north and thus away from the important battles in Natal and the Cape. Ironically, Baden-Powell himself, and behind the men's back, called them the Loafers, who were led by two dozen army career officers. Opposing this tiny force were, as I said, over 7,000 Boers. It's been argued that this move itself helped the British succeed in the entire war. However, had the Boers taken Mafeking by December 1899, it would have made very little difference in the war. They would have captured fewer than a thousand men, around 18 locomotives, and the railway line to Rhodesia, which was of little consequence at that point. It was access to the South African ports, which was far more important for the invading British army. Baden-Powell had a great deal of experience in South Africa, having served as the Chief of Staff during the Indebele War of 1896. But he had killed an unarmed chief called Uwami during that struggle and believed in outboring the Boers when it came to fighting blacks in Africa. He had faced serious disciplinary action over the execution of the chief, but it was quietly dropped. Furthermore, Baden-Powell's skill in scouting was built on the back of what he called hunting blacks. He used another phrase which I cannot repeat. He even published a book on this sport and his experiences of tracking men in a war which forms the basis of the scout tracking principles to this day. But there's no denying how effective he was as a leader and had many years' experience in Africa. No amount of revisionist history narrative can alter that fact. Immediately before the war, he faced a basic problem. How to defend a large town with 680 men of the newly raised Protectorate Regiment, aided by 300 white men from Mafeking itself? The garrison had two muzzle-loading seven-pounder cannons instead of modern howitzers, which were almost useless, while General Cronier's Boers had nine modern field guns and a huge 94-pounder Kruisot Long Tom called Old Creechy, or Old Creaky, as Sol Plyke called it. Technically, then, the Boers who knew this should have flattened the garrison and marched onwards, but they didn't. And why? 
The answer is quite amazing, because Baden-Powell tricked the Boers into believing the tiny force was more potent than it actually was. Initially, during October and November, he had ordered seven attacks, or kicks, as he called them, at the Boers. They were expensive, however. About a sixth of his garrison were killed, wounded, or missing, around 163 men. But these missions served their purpose. They surprised the Boers and made the commanders more cautious of launching an attack or an attempt to take Mafeking. He also constructed a Boer-like array of dummy forts, guns and armoured trains to convince the Boers that the force was potent. Remember how we heard about Louis Boerter using his men in Natal by moving them back and forth across trench lines which convinced the British they were fighting a large army. Baden-Powell used the same techniques here in Mafeking. He, like other really good siege commanders, had also concocted an array of strange defensive weapons. One day a certain Major Godley of the Protectorate Regiment had spotted a ship's cannon made of brass and dated 1770, employed as a gatepost on a nearby farm. The Baralong had bought it from the Germans, a trader, 50 years before as a protection against Boer raiders. It had BP and Co. engraved on the barrel, which stood for Bailey Peg Iron Founders, but the men took it as Baden-Powell, and they rechristened it Lord Nelson in a perverse sense of imperialistic brigado. After cleaning up the barrel, it fired a 10-pound cannonball, which Major Godley described as a large cricket ball, and rolled along the felt in one incident, flattening a Boer soldier. They also used jam tins loaded with dynamite as hand grenades, but these exploded erratically, so, a creative response was required and delivered by a certain Sergeant Page, the former fishing champion of Port Elizabeth, who used to attach the explosive jamton to fishing line and then cast it toward the Boer lines. There were no stats available to determine how effective Sergeant Page was. At the same time, the Boers were equipped with the latest German hand grenades, yet both sides suffered from poor aim when it came to ground-based troops using explosives that required being lobbed. Beyond the neat lines of tin-roofed bungalows and around a kilometre from the centre of town lay the Black Township with its mud huts and sycamore trees interspersed with large stones along the banks of the Malopo River. It was known as the native stadt or town where up to 8,000 people lived. 5,000 of these were Baralong tribe members led by a chief and a queen mother. 3,000 others were described by Sol Blakey as refugees and included the Bangwaketsi, Bakwena, Isizulu, Isindebele, Zambesians, Shangan, Basutu, Fingos and Isikosa. They were literally from the entire region of southern Africa. The Fingos and Shangan had been terribly abused. Most had been working on the Johannesburg mines before the war started and had fled and were robbed on the way by Boers. They had nothing, and the local people weren't entirely welcoming either. Baden-Powell was harsh in his treatment of those in the stadt, believing he should quell any attempts at an uprising before it was considered. He had vessels the Baralong chief fired for laziness, then executed dozens of others for stealing food, and had over 115 flogged for various infringements. This was ostensibly to instill a high level of discipline from the start. He used Shangans in particular to build British trenches because they had mine experience. They eventually dug eight kilometres of intricate trench networks to rival the Boers. But his next act is what shocked military observers, and particularly the Boers. In the midst of all this bias, he suddenly armed 300 African soldiers and christened the new unit 
the Black Watch. They included coloured corps South Africans from the Cape and were to prove some of the most feared troops the Boers faced and were dispatched to man the trenches nearest the Boers. In his book Mafeking, the Victorian legend by Brian Gardiner, there's a colourful description of what these black and coloured soldiers would do to entice the Boers into activity. The Black Watch men would uh, insult the Boers' mothers, daughters and sisters, leading to many close-quarter exchanges in the course of the encirclement. By mid-April, Baden-Powell was willing to break the rules and ordered two large parties of cattle thieves, as he called them, or Baralong men, to accompany a hundred head of cattle sent down by Pluma into Mafeking. Forty of these Baralongs were caught by the Boers. Two were shot. All the animals were seized. Then members of the Black Watch were caught trying to drive some of the Boer cattle into Mafeking, and Sneemans burgers shot 32 of the 33 men by turning a Maxim machine gun onto reeds where the Black Watch was hiding. Sneemans then sent a letter to Baden-Powell complaining that he was using black troops. Of the incident, Sol Plyke writes, they drove the cattle till around 3.30 a.m. and when we were very close to Mafeking and the Boers then stopped the cattle in front. They fought a desperate battle with good cheer. The Boers got the best of the game, as usual. Mafeking faced the longest siege of all towns in South Africa and also faced the most damaging artillery attacks by siege guns. Old Creechy or Creaky was instrumental in most of the destruction owing to its size and productivity of the gunners. Sometimes they fired over 70 shells into Mafeking on one day, but because of the gaps between houses, the most serious threat at the time was to morale, at least some of the time. Spotters could see the angle of Old Creaky's barrel before it fired and could warn different parts of the town. The alarm would be telephoned to the respective suburb where people would receive a local megaphone message and then run to the deep shelters excavated near main buildings where they would enjoy the cool depths as the shells cascaded into their properties above. But other times it was less forgiving. Sol Plaki again. In the evening a little chappy of the stut was struck by a piece of shell on his head and is not expected to live. A little boy was out herding cattle, and some boer shot him on his forehead, and the bullet came out the back of his head. If he was struck by a martini, that's an older British single-shot rifle, then he would have been dead already, but a Moser bullet being so small, he is still breathing. One of these survivors of a direct hit by Old Creaky is a character all by herself. In the last podcast, I told you about a certain Lady Wilson who sent toys and sweets to the Black Township and how Sal Plaiki described the little children's response. Well, one night, Lady Wilson and the resident commissioner, who were playing cards in the convalescent home, when a shell hit the floor above their room, two tons of masonry fell on top of the card players, but miraculously, they escaped harm. In another incident, a large African wedding party made its way down the street with the bridegroom in top hat and tails and a rifle slung over his shoulder and musicians in attendance like a New Orleans celebration. The revelers, however, came under attack by Boers who fired hundreds of Moza rounds and witnesses described the puffs of dust and shrieks of the ricochets which surrounded the happy throng of people who all miraculously escaped injury. So Lady Sarah Wilson was an oddity in that town. Her arrival itself is the stuff of legend. She was a duke's daughter and the sister of Lord Randolph Churchill, so Winston Churchill's aunt. She was young and beautiful by all accounts and came out to the then Rhodesia with her husband, a cavalry officer, when war began to escape the monotony of England. 
Lady Wilson got more than she bargained for. She was captured by the Boers and then exchanged for a Boer cattle thief and sent as a prisoner to Mafeking while her husband languished in Bulawayo. Her glamour made her a much sought-after partner for card games. By February, the pain had begun to ratchet up. A local company called Veal Limited had decided before the war to stockpile flour, meal, grain and other supplies to take advantage of local trading conditions. In October, however, Baden-Powell seized the company's stocks, offering half a million pounds in an IOU through Milner, the governor in the Cape. But how was the garrison able to exist on food that still was supposed to run out by January? It is here that we must attend to another disreputable moment in British history. Baden-Powell was no Jesus. He didn't pull fish and bread from a basket for the masses. The truth is more prosaic. Thomas Packenham managed to find the answer to this conundrum in the 1960s. Baden-Powell did it by starving black residents. Packenham quotes from Baden-Powell's confidential diary and found a remarkable detail which is quite chilling. Baden-Powell wrote, Whites, 1,074 men, women 229, children 405. Natives, 7,500 all told. Food, thus, we have 134 days for whites, 15 days for blacks. So what he decided to do initially was to use horse oats and grain for the black residents, and then his numbers tallied. But by February, the food for blacks was steadily being reduced. The rations were being rationed further. Both blacks and whites came under pressure. Baden-Powell, however, believed the Africans in the town were hoarding food and so thought that despite cutting their rations, they'd still find their own way of obtaining sustenance. What really happened was the white merchants of the town and their cronies were hoarding grain. Veal of the Veal Company deliberately misled the British about his stock of food so that he could raise the prices. Simultaneously, the Army Service Corps was also running its own black market, This meant grain earmarked for blacks was being stolen by these unscrupulous traders. Eventually, in February, Baden-Powell proposed to kick out all those he called foreign natives or the refugees who weren't but along. He'd heard that Colonel Plumer's force, moving from Bulawayo, was around 150 kilometers away to the north and decided to force black refugees out of the town to meet up with that relief column. 2,000 of these refugees were identified for expulsion. Angus Hamilton, the Times correspondent, who we've met already in previous podcasts, wrote, There can be no doubt that the drastic principles of economy are opposed to the dignity and liberalism which we profess and which enter so much into the settlement of the native questions in South Africa. The Times refused to print that story. Baden-Powell was the Queen's favourite, after all, but the Paul Mall Gazette published Emerson Neely's story, and he wrote, I saw them fall down on the felt and lie where they'd fallen, too weak to go on their way. The sufferers were mostly little boys, mere infants ranging from four or five upwards. Hunger had them in its grip. Many of them were black spectres and living skeletons, their ribs literally breaking their shriveled skin. Probably hundreds died from starvation. Some began digging up the corpses of dogs buried on the outskirts of town. They were so malnourished. Then, in early April, Baden-Powell adopted his final solution. He cut the number of black trench diggers to 122 
and his 2,000 refugees were now in real danger as he ordered them out of the town and to try and reach Pluma. The reason behind this thinking was sound militarily. Mafeking was critically food short, and Pluma had made a dash for the town and reached a point 10 kilometers to the north at Sanus Put before being driven back. That meant June was now the new date for possible relief, and the town was in serious danger of completely running out of food. Men began to leave in dribs and drabs. The next incident was savage and involved Baralong women, not the refugees. On the night of the 7th of April 1900, 700 women were persuaded to try to attempt a mass exodus. It was a disaster. Only 10 got away. The rest were returned after being stripped naked and flogged by the Boers. This was an old trick of a besieged town. The Romans were famous for doing this. Earlier in the Anglo-Boer War, Cecil John Rhodes had sent thousands of his black workers out of Kimberley, but the Boers had sent them back, aware of the strategic value of forcing their opponents under siege to find food. There is no written record of what the women said about their treatment. Back in Mafeking on the 13th of April, 200 women made another run for it at night, and this time they successfully evaded the Boers and made it to Pluma. Two nights later, the 15th of April, 13 women who heard about the successful escape made a run to get away from Mafeking, but this time the Boers shot and killed nine of the four that returned. Two were wounded. Baden-Powell sent a letter to the Boer commander complaining about the shooting of women. Yet, as starvation set in, many more tried to escape, and eventually 1,210 black Mafeking residents made the long march to Colonel Plumer, surviving Boers, wild animals, and the parched environment. Inside Mafeking, the incidents had a prescient effect on our diarist, Sol Plyke. He had maintained an independent view of proceedings, although he was a paid British subject, technically in a position of power as a translator. He was also privy to confidential information never made public. Starvation and the general mistreatment of the residents of the native stut had angered this mild-mannered language expert. So next week, we'll step back from Mafeking to view events taking place regionally and beyond. Thanks for listening. You'll find new material on our website, abwarpodcast.com, including pictures from a series of weekly newsletters published during the war called With the Flag to Pretoria. I'll scan a few items like the maps, which are rendered beautifully, as well as some of the more unusual images, such as the adverts of the time. Also, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. Until next week. Goodbye. <laughs>